Father, we're so grateful to you that you are the one who meets our every needs, that you are the one who is patient with us, that you love us, you express to us your loving kindness day by day. And Father, we're just thankful for what you do in our lives and the lives of, of our friends and loved ones and for those that have gone forth from, from this congregation to uh, minister in various places around this land and overseas. Lord, I pray that we will constantly be reminded that we are one body, we are of one faith, one spirit, and that we need to be supportive of one another in prayer each and every day. Lord, we commit this uh, class time to you. Pray that you will guide us in our study of your word, that your spirit will be the one to illuminate our minds with truth and to give us the strength and the passion to live in accordance with the directions we receive. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Last Sunday, we were looking at kind of a quick overview of the book of Leviticus in our study of the life of Moses. The narrative you find in Exodus and the narrative you find in Numbers. In Leviticus, you have uh, sandwiched in between the information that had to do with the establishment of the tabernacle worship, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and many of the laws that were corollary to the law. Uh, God didn't just say, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. He gave a whole explanation and, and inflation, if you will, of the law and understanding how it daily was operative in the lives of the people. And that, along with the, what was to be involved in, in the, the sacrificial system and what it meant spiritually, all is part of the book of Leviticus. And I, I want to go back to chapter 19 just for a moment uh, this morning. I, I jumped over one passage that uh, I want to point out because of its significance on down through the course of the Old Testament. In chapter 19 of Leviticus, reading at verses 9 and 10, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. One of the criticisms that I have heard from people who are not believers concerning particularly the Old Testament is that the God of the Old Testament seems to be a very harsh God. But as you read the Old Testament in detail, you find the compassion of God written on every single page. God cared for everyone in the society of Israel, and of course, as we know from John, God so loved the world that he gave his son to all, be they Jew or Greek, uh, slave or free. And even though the vast majority of the Gentile world in that day had little or no inkling of the truth, I mean, God only knows that. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that God has set eternity in the hearts of all people and uh, somehow God has brought his word from time to time and place to place. But um, we, we know that Israel was the nation that was to proclaim the word and to live the word before the people. And, and in order for Israel to be the example Israel needed to be, uh, God wanted them to learn compassion. God wanted them to learn that it was important to care for those who couldn't care for themselves. For, for whatever reason the people were needy, they still had to have their needs met. And so here, here was a method, a kind of a welfare system which involved uh, maintaining a person's dignity. 
because they were not handed a check, they were not handed you know, the food at the doorway, they had to go out and they had to pick it themselves, they had to thresh it themselves, they had to grind it themselves, they had to bake it themselves. They had to go pick the grapes themselves and crush the grapes themselves. It just wasn't their land, but they were allowed the corners and, and they were allowed the gleanings. And we see the importance of that, particularly as you study the book of Ruth, you know, that, that beautiful little vignette that's uh, stuck in the middle of the Old Testament there, uh, about this, this alien, this foreigner, this Ruth the Moabitess, who comes into the land to be supportive of her mother-in-law and demonstrates a love and, and, as Boaz says of her, an integrity of character almost unparalleled even amongst the Israelites. And she goes out into the fields to glean, I mean, to go after the reapers and to pick up what had fallen and whatever little stalks were left behind and were not harvested. Those days, of course, they didn't have big machines to go through there and chop, 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 you know, and clean out everything. People did it by hand with their little sickles, and as a result, you know, much would fall and, and, and so forth. And this maintained their dignity because they were still actually working for their living. And God understood this. And, and as we're going to be looking at other passages this morning, you keep coming across the fact that God cares about human dignity. God created us in his image. And, and the image of God is, is not one that, that grovels and is crushed into the dirt. Uh, the image of God is, is one where human dignity is, is preserved. And, and God is concerned about that. And you find it all the way through, through the Old Testament and, of course, in the New at the very end of class uh, last Sunday, I was talking about chapters 21 and 22, where it gives various rules for the priests and for the sacrifice. And I emphasized the fact that it talks there about the priests needing to be as physically perfect as possible and the sacrifices too. And, and we need to remember that the primary reason for that was that Jesus Christ came as the perfect high priest and as the perfect sacrifice. And, and this was, of course, a pale image of that, but at least it, it gave a focus towards what Jesus would be for us. Um, Jesus is not just something that God found lying around and said, oh, by the way, would you like to become a sacrifice? You know, this is God himself, the creator of the universe, uh, coming down to, to die for us as the perfect lamb of God. And as the perfect high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, we're told in Hebrews, without father and without mother, without beginning and without end. And so all of this was the, the image, the um, looking forward to that. And so the attitude was important for the Israelites to have an attitude that just any old thing is not good for God. You know, wh whatever you got left over, why you give that to God? No. You know, you don't go through your herd and find out, well, this, this lamb isn't going to make it anyway. It's got a broken leg. It's, it's, its wool is rotten. You know, it's got lopped ears or whatever else. We'll give that to God because that gives a wrong attitude. It's not that that lamb in and of itself is, is not a worthy sacrifice. It's the attitude that's reflected in the person who, who offers such a sacrifice. Um, God wants us to give our best because that reflects the attitude that we understand who God is and how important he is in our lives and in the lives of those for whom we love. I'd like now for us to look at Leviticus chapter 23, just briefly, of the ceremonial calendar. 
that, that he had established for Israel. That they were to, first of all, remember to keep the weekly Sabbaths. And how many times does this show up in Scripture? You know, How many times, do, as we go through the Old Testament, do we find a reminder to keep the weekly Sabbaths? That, of course, reflected the fact that it wasn't unusual for the Israelites, just it isn't unusual for Americans today, to, after a while, begin to feel like worshiping together with fellow believers is no big deal. You know, I mean, I'm still a believer whether I go to church or not. And, and you know, the Israelites could come into the same situation where, you know, if they didn't worship on the Sabbath, no big deal. I'm still a part of Israel. I'm still part of God's people just because I don't jump through all the hoops. But, th but that's a total uh, misunderstanding of what God's purpose is. Uh, God didn't put us here, down here to jump through hoops. But, but God gave us certain directions because that's what formulates our thinking so that we understand who we are in God and who we are to be to each other. If we don't fellowship together, how in the world do we know what the needs are of one another? You know, how can we be an encouragement to one another? I think it's really important for us as we gather on a Sunday morning like this to think about as we're, as we're coming to church and, and just kind of say to the Lord, Father, I don't know who I can be a blessing to today, but I would like to be a blessing to someone today. Bring someone across my path at church who needs what, I can, what you can say to them through me or what I can be to them for you today. And I, I think that's one of our obligations as God's children. We're not just here to, to sit as audiences in church or Sunday school, but in our times of fellowship, before, after, and maybe even during, to, to, to be a blessing to another one. I mean, even while you're sitting in, in this class or in, in the service out there, you can spot someone and say, I know that person has a real need and they're really hurting it. And you can offer a prayer even at that moment for them. And we, we have an old phrase uh, in, in America, I don't, I don't know where it came from, probably came from Europe or someplace, that uh, out of sight, out of mind. And that's often true. And, and that's why it's good to be in sight of one another, because then we're reminded of one another and, and our mutual needs. So God wanted them to remember to keep the weekly Sabbath. This was not a hoop for them to jump through. It was an act of obedience that demonstrated the commitment that they had to their God. Secondly, um, this, this chapter goes on to say that they were to, in the first month of their ceremonial year, they were to keep the Passover. That was in Nisan, which is more or less uh, the time period of our March, April. Most of the Hebrew months fell sort of in between our months, so they overlapped them. And the festival of the first fruits, and of course the festival of unleavened bread that was associated with the feast of the Passover. The, these were to be kept in that first month. And then in the third month, the passage goes on to tell us that they were to keep the festival of weeks, which is also known as the festival of harvest, and which later becomes known as Pentecost. And this was to be in the third month, which was the May-June June bracket, about 50 days after Passover, which of course is the meaning ultimately of uh, Pentecost. And then uh, fourthly, in the seventh month, which was called Tishri, which is our September to October, they were to keep the Feast of the Trumpets, and then of course Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high holy day of the whole year, and the Festival of Tabernacles, or sometimes it's called the Festival of Booths, where they built these little uh, shelters uh, for, and, and lived in them for a week as they uh, honored the Lord. What for? Wh why have all these? Again, are they just hoops? 
And do every year, the year begins, you have to think, oh no, man, I gotta go through Passover, I gotta go through the, this unleavened bread thing, and, and I've gotta go through this festival and that festival, and do this and do that, and this sacrifice, and appear before God at this time. Well, it was, we in our society can, could easily develop that kind of an attitude because we have so many demands upon us. You, know. you, you could actually fill your entire week, I'm sure, maybe some of you do, with, with things you feel obligated to go to and to be a part of. But that really wasn't true of Israel. They were a pastoral people. They were an agricultural people. They lived scattered. You know, they lived in villages, but you know, they weren't all crowded together in urban centers. I mean, the United States is 85% urbanized. That means only 15% of the people have sanity you know, <laughs> in this country. <laughs> they live out in the countryside. But, but most of Israel was, was rural. What was called a city in those days was a place in which you might find 2,000 people. Well, 2,000 people isn't enough today to actually fit into uh, the, the framework of what's considered urbanized. Today, uh, to be urbanized, you have to live in a center of 5,000 or larger. So you know, most of Israel would have been totally rural in those days, except for maybe a couple of cities. Uh, of course, at the time we're talking about, the whole thing was rural because they were living in the desert and uh, as a community. But the, the purpose of these festivals was, first of all, to be a constant reminder of their relationship with God. Do you know how easy it is to allow the relationship with God to deteriorate? I think you all do. It is not our natural human nature to maintain a relationship with God. And we have someone who is, if he can, going to sit in our laps and prevent us from having that relationship. The whole satanic world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're told. We war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and if we don't purposely choose to remind ourselves of our relationship to God, we can let that slip and become overwhelmed with all the things of this world all the time, especially if we're much given to sitting in front of the boob tube. I mean, that can wash over us to the point where, you know, we even forget there's God. We even become kind of disconnected with reality which is, of course, one of the reasons some people sit in front of it. But we as they needed a constant reminder of whose we are, whose they were. And, and these festivals did that. But not only that, it provided a national holiday. Do we like holidays? No, I think so. It was a, it was a time of celebration. It was a time of family gathering. It's very, very important for Israel. So that their culture their mores, their folkways, all of this stuff came together and focused around the worship of God. You look even at the pagan peoples today, the primitive peoples around the world today, and you discover many, many of their mores and, and, and cultural activities focus around religion. It just happens to be their, their pagan religion, their demons or, or uh, spirits, whatever it is they're worshiping. It seems like uh, the supernatural is, is, a, is a natural, <laughs> supernatural is a natural uh, focus for, for human gathering. And so God wanted it to be around the truth. And as we look a little bit further uh, down here this morning, we're going to see how that was focused. But first, in chapter 24, we have a, a kind of a little uh, insert here, you might say. The book of Leviticus has very few examples of narrative in it, in the sense of narrating an actual event transpiring. It, it just lists laws and, and regulations and explanations of regulations and so forth. But in the 24th chapter, we have a, a little event which is mentioned here, beginning at verse 10. It says, Now the son of an Israelite woman, 
whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalometh, daughter of Debris, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he shall bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Then down in verse 22, There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native. For I am the Lord your God. Over and over again, the scripture keeps saying in the Old Testament that whatever is to apply to Israel is to apply to anyone living within Israel. The sojourner, the foreigner, the stranger... They're to be treated with compassion, but they are to be treated under the law. Uh, there's no um, extraterritoriality uh, to be uh, applied here to them. Now, this might seem like a very minor incident. Some guy curses while he's fighting with another guy, so they take him out and stone him. Uh, we might say, well, that doesn't seem like it would uh, necessitate a comment uh, in Scripture. But... Uh, this description, I think, provides opportunity to highlight two very important truths. The first is that the third commandment was not to be taken lightly. Blasphemy of the sacred name, and what is implied here, of course, is Yahweh, was a capital crime. <laughs> Just think if that were true today. We'd have a very small population in this country. It was a capital crime. Why was it a capital crime? Is God's ego so sensitive that to hear somebody curse his name, he just <laughs> can't take it? Absolutely not. has not a thing to do with that at all. It is an expression of national and spiritual treason. It was high treason to blaspheme the name. And high, high treason in virtually any place is a capital crime. Because to blaspheme the name of God was to declare oneself allied to the enemy of Israel and the enemy of God, the great eternal, well, not eternal, but the great blasphemer, Satan. It was to ally him with him. It was to declare oneself a member of the enemy camp to do such a thing. And so God said, whether they be alien or Israelite, if they blaspheme the name, they're to be stoned to death. Secondly, this passage also teaches us and taught Israel that whether they be Israelite or non-Israelite who lived amongst Israel, they were accountable equally to the law. They were accountably equally to the law. Accountable equally to the law. And the stranger couldn't get away. Now, he wasn't a total stranger, of course, because the scripture says he was the uh, son of an Israelite woman, but his father was an Egyptian. Being as his father was an Egyptian, therefore he was considered to be, as it were, an alien in Israel. Now, the scripture tells us in, in, in more than one place that when Israel left Egypt, that there was a rabble that went with them. 
that there was an element of non-Israelites that left with Israel. Uh, obviously, in some cases, they must have been some Egyptians, but probably in many cases, there were other non-Egyptians who were living in Egypt at that time, possibly in servitude, and they took this as an opportunity to get out too and went along with Israel. And uh, they will become kind of a thorn in the flesh as time passes here. They tend to be the element that grumbles first and kind of infects the rest of Israel with this, this grumbling. Was it because they did not accept the truth? Was it because many of them re rejected the God of Israel? Well, we can assume that, I suppose. Which, of course, helps us to understand why chur churches today, by translation <clears throat> to the 20th century, why, why churches should not tolerate heresy in their midst. Uh, because uh, heresy has a tendency to be infectious and uh, can uh, steal the joy and the light uh, from, from God's people. The 25th uh, chapter of Leviticus is a very, very uh, important and informative chapter because this deals with laws having to do with land use, particularly as it's focused in what is called the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. The, the principle of the Sabbath, the principle of the Sabbath, that is that every seven was to be set aside here as far as days of a week were concerned, now is applied to years. Let's look at uh, the first few verses of chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year, and all of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself, your male and female slaves, and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. God had proclaimed for Israel the sabbatical year for several reasons. The first reason was to underscore that the land was his. We sing the song, this land is your land, this land is my land. No, this land is his land. <laughs> From California to the New York Island, this is his land. The whole world is his. And, and really, it's important that God's people acknowledge that. God is the owner of it all. And for me to say, this is my property, and this is my money, and I built this with my own hands. <laughs> well, someone said that on the roof of his palace, uh, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar, and God basically answered him and said, you're full of baloney. You know? And uh, so he was crazy for the next seven years and ate grass off that land, which he said was his. So God wanted to underscore the fact that this was his land. He had given it to Israel. He wanted to underscore the fact that it was important that Israel avoid this, this unrelenting desire for greed. Now, greed drives the human race. Greed is, is almost omnipresent. 
it's, it's a characteristic that, that every one of us has to fight. I mean, it may not always be in the same area, but there, there is this, this natural human tendency to be greedy. And this, of course, particular passage relating specifically to greed related to land, which means ultimately in that society wealth. It, it was to demonstrate God's active care for his people because if he says to them, there's one year in which you're not going to plant and you're not going to harvest. And they, their natural response to God would be, yeah, right, so we're supposed to diet for a year? <laughs> you know, we're supposed to fast for a year? No, the scripture will, will tell us that God says, I will provide an adequate increase in the sixth year so that you don't have to <laughs> worry about what you'll eat through until the next harvest comes in in the year after the um, sabbatical year. So God will provide. Learning to trust God. Many of you have had to do that on many occasions, whether you wanted to or not. Learn to trust God. And sometimes that's why he brings hard times on us. So that we will learn to trust him. It's not because he thinks that we're bad dudes and, and he wants to punish us. It's because we need to learn to trust. And some of us are saying, I've learned already. <laughs> to provide a refreshing year for the whole society. Can you imagine that? A refreshing year for the whole society. To, to just break the, the, the regular work rhythm. <clears throat> Wouldn't you like that? Only after work six years, then the seventh year you can kind of kick back and, and just you know, go out and pick some grapes when you're hungry and do this when you're hungry. And, and, and uh, all your bills are put in, in, in limbo <laughs> for a year, no interest being accrued. And, and then you start over again the, the following year. I mean, how, would it be good for us? Probably would. I don't know what it would do to our system, but actually it'd probably be good for our system, but I don't think it'll be set in motion too soon. <laughs> it was also to allow a year of rejuvenation for the soil, a year of rejuvenation for the wildlife. There would be an abundance of food for the birds and the foxes and the rabbits, and the, uh, the, the soil could rejuvenate. Most of us are probably not farmers, but some of us probably have some farming background. And you know that you cannot just keep harvesting off the same piece of land without allowing something to be put back into that land. Now, of course, a lot of it's done by artificial fertilization, but in those days, they didn't have all that uh, knowledge or uh, availability. And so allowing the land to be fallow every seventh year helped it to recoup some of its strength so that it would be able to uh, go on and produce crops. And then also, it was a time for the poor to have ample opportunity to go out and glean from themselves, to pick from the fields and the grapes and, and, and the orchards, wherever they were, and because everything became public property at that time. I mean, you could go on anybody's land and pick anybody's fruit because it was all to be just left unharvested in the sense of nobody going through and gathering it all up to, to, to sell it or process it, but just as was needed, it would be gathered, and so the poor would have an abundance that year. Does God care for his people? If you read on through the Pentateuch, if you come to Deuteronomy, you discover that the sabbatical year was also to be the year in which debts were canceled and servitude was canceled. And what is even more interesting and very positive about this, in the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy, it says that part of that sabbatical year was to be spent in what we would call short-term Bible school. Israel was to gather and to be taught the Word. 
Oh, you know, if you don't have to harvest, you don't have to plant, you don't have to process, you don't have to do all those things. You've got time to gather together and to hear the word taught and, and to meditate on it and to learn about God who provides it all. Well, going on in this chapter, beginning at verse 8, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourselves, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, which of course was Yom Kippur. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather from it its, un, from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price, and in proportion to the fewness of years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce, so that you can eat your fill and leave, live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when the crop comes in. I mean, is that illustrative of God's divine intervention in the daily lives of his people or what? The Jubilee was in effect a Sabbath of Sabbath, a Sabbath of sabbatical years, if you like. And the Jubilee was to be like the others in the basic things that happened in the other uh, sabbatical years. But in the Jubilee, there would be one different thing. And that was property was to be returned to its original owners. Now, the question that uh, commentators ask about this is, where does the word Jubilee come from? And there are two possibilities. Maybe both are involved. Uh, one is that the word comes from Yobel, which is the term for the ram's horn that was blown on Yom Kippur all through the land, declaring the beginning of the year of Jubilee. The other is that it comes from a similar Hebrew word, Yabal, uh, which means to bring forth, uh, in the sense of bringing forth and giving people back their land, in the sense of, that, uh, of everything being brought forth abundantly so that people would be provided for through the year of Jubilee. Now, why does God do this? What is, what is the purpose of this? Well, again, we have to put our minds back into the context of an agricultural people. The purpose of the commandment 
was to keep the families in Israel from becoming permanently landless. God knows the propensity of his of people and even of his own people for greed and acquisitiveness. And he understood that some would attempt to expand their land holdings at the expense of others during their hard times when they're forced to sell. Throughout history, the cry of the landless has been for what is known as land reform. This is still heard today. If you listen, you can hear it. Especially through Latin America, do you hear this cry still coming forth? Land reform. Take these huge estates owned by just a few families who are super wealthy and break them up and give the land to the tenant farmers as their own land because that will restore to them dignity, the dignity of being a landowner. In agricultural communities, your social and your political clout, if you, if you like, your status and your dignity is almost always based on land ownership. Generally speaking, in such societies, to be landless is to be disenfranchised. So God's plan was, yes, there probably will be a day in which somebody through his financial exigency might be forced to sell the family spread, homestead, but that land was to not be permanently alienated from the family, but was in the year of Jubilee to be returned to the family free and clear, whatever the status was when it was originally sold. Now we might say, well, the buyer's going to get ripped off here. <laughs> you buy this land and in the year of Jubilee, you've got to give it back. What kind of a deal is that? But scripture, as we read this morning, makes it quite clear how that worked out. It, the price was prorated. I mean, if you bought the land and it was going to be 48 years until the next Jubilee, in other words, you buy it right after a, a Jubilee, uh, why, that's a long time, probably longer than you're going to live to, to own the land. And so the price will be such and such. But if it's like five years to the Jubilee, then the price is way down here. The scripture says, you will pay according to the crops it will yield. So you see, that way, the person in need has his need met because the person buys the land, he has the cash to pay off his indebtedness, and the person who buys the land pays a low enough price so that he can afford to allow it to go back to its owner in Jubilee, and he, his investment will have been rewarded. It is a win-win situation. They do exist. Win-win situations do exist if God is in charge and if we're obedient to God. What this demonstrates to us is that God cares immensely for the need of his people. And, and that God is concerned for fairness. God is concerned for justice. God is concerned for human dignity and adequate provision for his people. Now, if these laws that, that God instituted here had been scrupulously followed by Israel down through the centuries, then Israel would have been a land like no other land in the world. A land with very, very few poor. The only people who would have been poor would have been those too lazy to work, and it seems like every society has some of those, and those who had socially aberrant behavior which put them in an uh, impoverished uh, situation. Otherwise, everybody would you know, have the dignity of having his own piece of property, providing for his own family, and not feeling dependent upon a government or uh, some other organization to keep him going. 
There are corollary laws, however, given in this passage that further enlighten us about how this was to work, beginning in verse 29. Verse 29 we read, Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is, if it is not bought back for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser. Through his generations, it does not revert in the Jubilee. The houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in Jubilee. 32. As for cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sale in the city of this possession reverts in the year of Jubilee. For the house of the Levites are the possession among the sons of Israel, but pasture lands of their cities shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual provision. So God makes obvious additions to that general law of Jubilee here, uh, depending on what kind of property it is. We discover that if it's an urban dwelling, that was considered to be any a structure that was inside a walled city or walled town. You know, one of the things that that reminds me of is, you know, in the book of Revelation, we read about the New Jerusalem, and the New, new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and it has these big walls, and it has gates through the walls, and we think, that's not part of our, our, our normal existence. I mean, Reading doesn't have any walls around it, and San Francisco, New York, London, Chicago, you know, there are no walls around these cities. I mean, our cities are just, just open. But you know, that's a phenomenon of very modern history. From as far back as we can trace human urban civilization, walls have been around major structures. From ancient Mesopotamia, clear back in the years of the, the decades, the generations of the Sumerians, the cities were walled. And cities have been walled throughout thousands of years of history. So actually, the experience in Revelation is going to be common to, to people who have lived through almost all of human history except for us moderners. Of course, what we need to do is go to Europe and visit a few walled cities so we won't feel too uncomfortable, I suppose. The <laughs> purpose of walls, of course, was to provide for defense. Jerusalem isn't going to need any defense from any attacker, but, uh, you know, I, I, we can, I suppose, uh, spiritualize all of that and say, well, the wall really means this and the wall really means that. I think John saw a wall. But, but here we discover that if a, if a structure was in a walled city, the person had a full year's right to redeem that house. In other words, the buyer could not consider it a permanent deal until a year was up. He could be forced to sell it back to the person he had bought it from within one year. But after the year passed, it was his for permanently. And even in Jubilee, it would not revert back, except if it were the house of a Levite. Then the Levite could buy it back at any time, and it would become his again at Jubilee no matter what. And then, of course, when it came to the land of a Levite, he couldn't sell the land ever. So that part uh, wouldn't uh, apply. So why, why the difference? Why was it that if you were in an unwalled village, your, ho your house was considered part of the property, it would revert in Jubilee. If it were in a walled city, it wouldn't revert in Jubilee. Well, the scripture doesn't say, but I think from it we can interpret that the main reason for that was that 
if you lived in a city, in an, in an urban dwelling in the city, probably you were not a farmer. Probably you were not dependent upon the land to produce. That was not your source of, of livelihood. Unless, of course, you were an absentee landlord. I mean, you owned some land out there and somebody else was taking care of it for you and you were just living a good life in the city. In either case, then, your home was not necessary to the, you know, your ongoing existence. It had nothing to do with your ultimate property ownership. Uh, because if your occupation was a blacksmith and you wanted to sell this house and move to another town, go ahead, you know. You could be a blacksmith there as well as you could be here. But for the farmers, where everything was dependent on the land, this, this was the key to, to it, and it reverted in Jubilee for the good of the people economically. There's some other statements in chapter 25 that relate to other social laws, and I don't want to make them seem insignificant here, so I guess I'll talk about them uh, next week. But really, this whole idea of servants, of slavery, all, all this is really kind of important for us to understand how it operated in Israel. And that's highlighted as you go down through this uh, the remaining part of this 25th chapter, so we'll do that next Sunday.